You're listening to the Sunday podcast from LifePoint Church in Santan Valley, Arizona. We hope you're encouraged by today's message. For more information, visit us online at lifepointaz.com. Good morning, LifePoint. How are you guys doing today? I'd like to welcome you both, those who are here uh, in person and those who are online. Uh, Pastor Tim is on the live stream chat, so he gets a little lonely. So just go over, send him a message if you're online. Uh, say hi, ask him a question. He is very responsive. Um, they're not up here anymore, but I, I, the band did a great job. Uh, for those of you who don't know me, I'm uh, Pastor Joe. I'm usually leading worship. I do the, I'm the worship pastor here. Um, but I'm doing this, so I, I'm so glad that they did a great job. It is so nice to just sit and worship and not be thinking about if I'm going to hit the next chord or memorizing things or what the next words are. It's very nice. Um, all right. So if you joined us in the last few weeks, you'll know that, that we're entering our last week of our, of our three weeks of fasting. Um, and we've been focusing this time in the past, it's always been fast, pray, something. This year has just been on discipleship. Disciples serve and lead. And so today, uh, as we're kind of closing out this series, it's on discipleship itself. Uh, Pastor Blake spoke on discipleship regarding fasting and family. Pastor Mike spoke on having a heart that is bent towards serving. And so today... We're going to speak directly to the heart of this series, discipleship. So, what is a disciple? What is discipleship? What does it look like today? Um, And the one question, if you take nothing else away that I say today, I want you to take this question home with you. Am I a disciple of Jesus Christ? I think it's a good question. It's a, it's a fair question. Am I a disciple of Jesus Christ? And you probably have a gut reaction to this question. For, um, for those of you that have chosen to, to call Jesus your Lord and Savior, that you've made that decision already, the answer may be, of course, I'm a disciple. I read my Bible every day. I go to church. Yes, I'm a disciple. For some others, uh, that gut answer may be, I believe that Jesus died on the cross for me. I trust in him to save me from my sins, but I don't know that I would identify myself as a disciple, if that's something that I would verbalize to anyone. And if we're being honest, if we think about it, it's a little bit intense, right? Um, Jesus, in, in in the Great Commission, Matthew 28, verses 18 to 20, if you want to bring that up, says, and Jesus came and said to them, all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Go, therefore, and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. And behold, I am with you always to the end of the age. And so if we, if we look at what Jesus is asking us to do, and we look at being a disciple, There's so much commitment in those words. I am a disciple of Jesus. So we're going to use this analogy. Just imagine that you're in line at Starbucks. And I'm not talking about the drive-thru. So before 2020, people used to get out of their cars, and they used to walk in to get a coffee. Do you guys remember that? 
So you're allowed to do that again. You do not have to make the car line 60 cars long and block the entire parking lot. All right, just as, just as an off reminder there. Um, but so you're in line physically, in person, and you, you start up a conversation that you would have with this person, uh, somebody next to them, and you ask them this question, what, what is it that you do? Now, if we ask each other that question, our general, uh, what we mean by it is, what do you do for a living? What, what is it that you, what is your job? What is your work that you do? And, uh, and so if they said, to answer that question, I am a disciple of Jesus, I think you would be taken aback. First reaction, it's a weird thing to say for a, for a couple different reasons. One, most of us don't call ourselves a disciple in any other context. And in fact, in our culture, there's really, there's, outside of a religious context, there's really nowhere that you are called a disciple. And so we don't have any cultural thing. The next closest thing that we have today would be an apprentice. And even that has kind of gone by the wayside, right? If I say apprentice, for many of you, that conjures up images of like a blacksmith's apprentice, like a 12-year-old stoking the fires for, 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 you know, a burly man. And that's the only like apprenticeship thing. And so then we, the closest thing we have to that is internship. And it just does, it doesn't convey anything in our culture. And so we have to look to what it would mean for them. Second of all, once we get past that weirdness, then it's very weird because they probably know that you're asking them what their job is. And so it, more importantly to them what they do, more than what their actual job is, they're identifying themselves as a disciple of Jesus. And in our current culture, that's an offensive thing, right? It goes too far, and it's too upfront and blunt. We're, that's what we're taught in our culture, that if you are upfront in your beliefs to other people, that it's somehow an affront to them, that it's offensive, that it somehow is forcing your beliefs upon them. Jesus made it very clear, though, that being a disciple is not an intellectual exercise. It's not just something that we think in our head, that we say with our mouth, but that it's backed up by actions that actually happen in this world. In Matthew 8, uh, verses 18, when Jesus saw a large crowd around him, he gave orders to cross to the other side of the sea. And one of the scribes came to him and said, Teacher, I will follow you wherever you go. Sounds good. Uh, Jesus, knowing this guy's heart, knowing this guy's mindset, says, Foxes have dens and birds of the air have nests. But the Son of Man has no place to lay his head. He knows that this guy just wants, he thinks he wants Jesus, but he doesn't actually know what it's going to cost him. He doesn't actually know what being a disciple is about. And one thing that's interesting is in this time period, a, a, a rabbi would not go out and call people to himself. That's not how it worked. There wasn't any set thing that you had to do to become a rabbi or anything like that, but they wouldn't come, they wouldn't go around and find their own followers. They, people would come to them after they established themselves, public preaching, doing these different things. People would come to them. So that's what this guy is doing. The other times that we see the disciples that uh, we normally identify with Jesus were called by him, right? Right? Just walking by, and he says, come, 
follow me, I'll make you fishers of men to this group of fishermen. That just didn't happen. And so we already know that Jesus' model of discipleship is one uh, different than what other people even at that time would have done, and he makes his own definitions of this. And so this guy that says, teacher, I will follow you wherever you go, the normal response to this would be, okay, yeah, yeah, I want you to come. I want to build up my influence, build up my school, build up my, um, you know, build up my influence in the, in the area. And so for instead Jesus to reply saying, you're not going to have anywhere to live is a weird thing. And so Jesus makes it very clear that there are very real and very physical ramifications to being a disciple. And so if we're being honest, the American church that we see today uh, has a serious problem when it comes to discipleship. It's often part of the verbiage of churches. If you look up statements of belief, there's always going to be something about discipleship because we know that's what Jesus called us to do. But then if you actually look at our actions, they paint a little bit different picture. Uh, Our mission statement here at LifePoint Church is uh, about being a disciple. Our mission is to help people become fully devoted followers of Christ through intentionally serving, giving, and caring for our neighbor. And it's interesting, I don't know who came up with this. I wasn't around. This is a long time ago. But it's interesting that we don't even use the word disciple here because it's difficult. to. It doesn't convey as much information. We say fully devoted follower of Christ. A lot of words to mean the same thing. That's what a disciple is. And so in Jesus' last words on earth, he told his disciples to go and make more disciples. Although at other times, he made it very clear that uh, spreading the gospel, helping the poor, helping the widows and orphans, those things are all part of his kingdom, very important. These are the words that he chose to intentionally emphasize when he was leaving. It was his last commission to them. It was their job. It was the most important thing that he was leaving with them. Go and make disciples. So now, his disciples would have had a much more clear understanding of what that meant versus us today, right? They had just lived it for three years. So they were learning to be fishers of men. They were learning to do what Jesus did. So while their switch from being a student to a teacher would have been difficult, anybody switching from being a student to a teacher, there's a difficult time period where you mess up a lot, but that's where you grow the most. They understood where the goalpost was, right? They had the perfect picture, the perfect example of what they were going for. And so they also understood the seriousness of what Jesus was asking them to do. And I think sometimes today, in order to essentially sell Jesus, oftentimes the church downplays what it will cost. We downplay what it means to be a disciple. And so, in essence, we rewrite what it means to be a disciple. We make up our own definition and we make it easier to follow the Lord but we end up on the wrong path. The disciples knew that they, what they were calling to was for people to give up their entire lives. Jesus made that super clear very often. In Luke 9, uh, 
23 and 24, he, and Jesus said to all of them, if anyone would come, uh, if it, whoever wants to be my disciple must deny themselves and take up their cross daily and follow me. For whoever wants to save their life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for my sake will save it. And so these are things that Jesus had been teaching. This wasn't just something that he sprung upon them after he died um, and, and they didn't know what they were getting into. This was something that he had been telling them the entire time. So they knew that they were going to be calling people to give up their lives, just like they had done, just like they were. And two, eventually, like most of them in the next few years, would meet a very real death because of what they were doing. And if you think they didn't know the risk, then why did they run away when Jesus, you know, was captured, when Jesus was taken in and arrested? They 100% knew that if they're associated with this guy, they're probably going to die. And, and so they knew that, and so then they're called to call other people into this. Um, that's a hard sell. You know what I mean? It's not, you can't just say, oh, you're going to have all these awesome things. Also, you have to give up your entire life and you'll probably die. Everything in this world that you've worked for, you have to give it up. Because you cannot work for both. And so bringing this back to the churches today, while it's never explicitly stated, many churches often act that you can just, you know, add being a disciple onto whatever you have going on. Just sprinkle it on top, little here, little there. You've already got this really good thing going on. You know, you learn some teachings of Jesus, and you just, uh, well, I'll take some of that stuff away, and I'll put some Jesus on top, and all of a sudden, I have my perfect version of my life, right? I think I've taken all the good things, and I've left out the other things that I don't want to do. I've taken the good things of the world, and I've taken the good things of Jesus, and I've just had this easy um, life. And I think that's very easy for us to do in America. And I think a lot of churches, whether or not they say that, in order to fill people in the church, if your goal is to get people to come to your church, to grow, to make it look better, make yourself feel better, then that is the path that you will go down. But Jesus didn't ask us to do that. He asked us to make disciples. So even though churches say that discipleship is their goal, their actions show that it's not always as important as they said it is. So we need a church culture transformation. We don't need more people sitting in pews. We need actual life change. We need people being actually transformed, Romans 12, 2. Be transformed by the renewing of your mind. God calls you to be cast away everything before and take on the new. You know, it's, it's so easy to define discipleship however we want because um, we make it that way in our culture. You know, if you just add a Bible study here and Sunday worship here and then all of a sudden, boom, you look around and you are doing better than 80%, 85% of the people around you, right? And so you think, wow, I'm doing pretty good. That's, I'm now meeting the status quo. I'm actually exceeding it. And so if, if other people are your barometer, then you're not going to do very well on God's scale. 
we know that what God looks at, what Jesus has asked us to, is so much more difficult and to the nth degree than when Jesus came and he said, you know, I did not come to abolish the law but fulfill it. And the Pharisees had all these different laws and they, they were trying to, you know, get as close to the line as they could without crossing over. And so they would have different laws regarding all sorts of things. And Jesus said when he, when he came that he actually was taking everything to the nth degree. You know, if you're angry with your brother, but you've already committed murder to uh, you've already murdered him in your heart. If you look at a woman with lust, then you already have committed adultery with her. You can't go by appearance on the outside because it's all about your heart. And, uh, and in general, we just forget what Jesus taught us about the kingdom of God. I want to read uh, from Matthew 25, starting at verse 14. For it will be like a man going on a journey who called his servants and entrusted them to his property. To one he gave five talents, to another two, to another one, to each according to his ability. Then he went away. He who had received the five talents went at once and traded with them, and he made five talents more. So also he who had the two talents made two talents more. But he who had received the one talent went and dug in the ground and hid his master's money. Now after a long time, the master of those servants came and settled accounts with them. And he who had received the five talents came forward, bringing five talents more, saying, Master, you delivered to me five talents. Here I made five talents more. His master said to him, Well done, good and faithful servant. You have been faithful over a little. I will set you over much. Enter into the joy of your master. And the exact same thing happened with the, the uh, servant with two. But we get to the servant with one talent. Verse 24, it says, He also, who had received one talent, came forward, saying, Master, I knew you to be a hard man, reaping where you did not sow, and gathering where you scattered no seed. So I was afraid, and I went and hid your talent in the ground. Here you have what is yours. But his master answered him, you wicked and slothful servant. You knew that I reap where I have not sown and gather where I scattered no seed. Then you ought to have invested my money with the bankers, and at my coming I should have received what was my own with interest. So take the talent from him and give it to him who has ten talents. For to everyone who has... Who has, more will be given, and he will have an abundance. But from the one who has not, even what he has will be taken away and cast the worthless servant into the outer darkness. In that place, there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. So I think lots of people get confused about this passage and, and uh, what it means, but what I want to focus on today is really simple. Which servant are you? And if you know the answer to that question, which servant do you want to be? You know, just like the servant that buried the money in the ground, oftentimes we come up with our own reasons and excuses for our behavior. You know, we don't want to be bold 
and sold out for Jesus because we're simultaneously trying to hold on to what we have in this world. We're afraid that we're going to lose what we have. We're afraid to give everything to Jesus because what if it doesn't pay off? If we really believe that that is the most valuable thing, Jesus always tell, also tells the parable about the field, right? Where there's a treasure in the field and the man sells everything he has to buy that field that from the outside looks worthless, but there's a treasure in it. And it's the same thing. It's about the kingdom of God. If we truly believe that what God has is more valuable than everything, then that has a lot of ramifications for our lives. And holding on to the things of this world is worthless. The servant was afraid of messing up, so he did nothing. We decide that it's just better to fold, to lay down our hand and take what we already have instead of going all in on exactly what Jesus promised us we would win. You have the winning hand just sitting there, and instead you're like, nah, I might, I might lose. I'm going to take this little thing over here instead of you could win everything. When, we, uh, when I look at Acts chapter 4, um, it's early on in the, in the disciples' ministries, you know, on their own without Jesus, and they're just starting to face persecution, right? Stephen hasn't been stoned yet. James hasn't been killed yet, but they just got arrested, right? And so there is danger, and they're threatened and charged not to preach the gospel anymore. And uh, these are from the same guys that already killed Jesus. So it's not like death is a, is a threat. It's an em- not an empty threat. Like, they will go through with it if they need to. And so when they get together, this is J- uh, Peter and John just came back from being arrested, and they get together with the other believers. And in Acts chapter 4, verse 29, it says this. They pray this together. And now, Lord, look upon their threats and grant to your servants... Safety? No. Grant to your servants to continue to speak your word with all boldness. That always hits me really hard because I think we have a lot of opportunities every day to be bold. And not only are we not most of the time, but we don't even want to ask God for the boldness to do it. We're scared of that. It's like not wanting to pray for patience because you know God will give you something to be patient about. If I pray for boldness, God's gonna give me something difficult. He's gonna ask me to do something, but he's gonna give you the boldness to do it. And so when was the last time you prayed for boldness? It just blows my mind that that's what they prayed for, that it specifically says when they came together in this danger, in these hard times, that they prayed that they would continue in boldness. Hebrews 12.1 says, Therefore, since we are surrounded by such a great cloud of witnesses, let us throw off 
everything that hinders us and the sin that so easily entangles. And let us run with perseverance the race marked out for us. Now, we're going to talk about a race because Paul really likes to talk about racing. And, um, but one thing about this is that we're supposed to be casting away every hindrance. We're supposed to be single-minded and so much so that he says, not even just sin. Lots of times we just cast off sin. And then we have, okay, well, we also have this other thing. TV shows that I like to watch or whatever. Not necessarily bad. But you spend two or three hours a day. Is that on that? Is that a single-minded thing? Or is that a hindrance? And uh, only you and God will convict you can answer those kind of questions for yourselves. But whatever is a hindrance in your life, cast it away. We have a race to win. And using this analogy, can you even imagine a marathon runner that showed up just in like chains and weights? He's like, no, I like these. And everyone else is just looking at him like, you're, not only are you not going to win, but you're probably not even going to finish, right? So we're supposed to run in a way to win in 1 Corinthians 9, 24, it says, Do you not know that in a race, all the runners run, but only one gets the prize? Run in such a way as to get the prize. Everyone who competes in the games goes into strict training. They do it to get a crown that will not last, but we do it to get a crown that will last Forever. Therefore, I do not run like someone running aimlessly. I do not fight like a boxer beating the air. No, I strike a blow to my body and make it my slave so that after I have preached to others, I myself will not be disqualified for the prize. So we're supposed to be running in this race as if to win. And, you know, I've heard it so many times. I'm not a pastor. I'm not an evangelist. I could never do that. God hasn't given me this gift and that gift, whatever it was. And it's just an excuse because God has called you to that. The only difference between you and a pastor, you and an evangelist, you and a missionary is where God has called you to minister. We are all representatives of God. We're all ministers. But God has put us in different places. He's given us different people to minister to. Think of the most godly person that you can imagine. Maybe somebody you know personally, and maybe uh, a popular figure, maybe a figure in history. Who is the most godly person um, that you can think of, besides Jesus, that doesn't count? And that person is who you're running the race against. Right? Paul said, be imitators of me as I am of Christ. Who is that person that you see them just serving the Lord with everything they have? That the way that they live their life is just significantly different than everybody else that you know. And there's something that just draws you in. But it's terrifying. It's terrifying to think of doing what they did. And yet, that's how we're supposed to run. We're supposed to spur each other on. Luckily, there's not only one prize. Jesus already won. 
You know, we talk about spiritual warfare, about being in God's army, right? To use another example. And we oftentimes just imagine ourselves when we talk about this in the armor of God as just, you know, a nameless, faceless soldier, right? We put on our armor just to survive to the next day, right? I mean, God gave us a sword and the weapons to fight, but we just want to put it on and cower in a corner and survive to the next day. That's often how we, we think about it. And that's like, that's all I can do, right? If I don't do this, then I won't survive. And that's true. You won't survive. When in reality, we're supposed to be the ones that are taking the fight to the enemy. You know, Jesus calls us more than conquerors, Right? not scared little babies in a corner. We're supposed to be training each other up in righteousness. We're supposed to be fighting the battle not just to survive, but to win. And God has given us the the tools. He's given us the tools, but we just choose not to. Just like that servant, we bury it in the ground. We bury what God has given us in the ground because we're afraid. We bury our head in the ground because we're afraid. And there are so many things that can sidetrack us. You know, the world that we live in with Satan acting as the prince of this world currently, constantly trying to get us off the path. And it happens uh, so easily. As soon as our gaze slips for a moment, as soon as we forget we're in a race, as soon as we forget that we're fighting a war, then we've lost. So I want to give you three things about disciples that uh, you can take home. One, disciples understand that their whole lives revolve around their master. Like I said before, most disciples would have came seeking out their master, seeking out their rabbi, seeking out to be. And why? They want to be that person. When you train under someone, uh, it mentions that Paul trained under uh, Gamaliel, who was a very famous teacher in the day. And he mentions that to establish how educated he was, right? That once he's trained under him, he is essentially that person going out, right? He's, he's trained by him, and so it's like an extension of that person's authority. So when you're a disciple of Jesus, and Jesus calls you, you have his authority. So many times we act like we don't. But in John chapter 6, after chasing away the massive crowd, this is when Jesus uh, talks about drinking his blood and eating his body and everybody leaves. Jesus turns to the 12 and says, do you want to leave too? And Peter responds like a true disciple. He says, Lord, To whom would we go? You have the words of eternal life. We believe and know that you are the Holy One of God. We've given up everything. Our lives now revolve around you. There's nowhere for us to to go, and there's nowhere else we would rather be. You alone have the words of life. You alone are the Holy One of God. So he was sold out and ready to make his entire life revolve around Jesus. 
Number two, running the race isn't about making no mistakes, but rather continually choosing to run in the right direction. I, again, I think nobody embodies this in Scripture better than Peter. We see him messing up at pretty much every point in his life, right? In his early ministry with Jesus, where he, you know, he's, he's, he's falling in the water, and he's doing all these different things, and he's saying things, and Jesus says, get behind me, Satan. And, and then even later, right, when he messes up, and he's, uh, he wouldn't sit with the Gentiles, right? And Paul had to correct him because he, was, uh, he wasn't going down the right path. The cool thing about Peter is that every time he repents and he changes his path, right? He doesn't, you know, sit in his pride and keep going. He actually changes his path. In Galatians 5 verse 7 says, you were running a good race who cut in on you to keep you from obeying the truth. So we have this church, the Galatians, that were running the race and then something happened. And Paul says, who messed you guys up? Why are you off the path? But the reason he's saying this is not because now they're forever done. They don't get another chance. But because rather the entire book of Galatians, he's encouraging them to follow the Lord and correcting them on lots of things and encouraging them in different ways. We've talked a lot of times about uh, repentance in the last couple months. And that's exactly what repentance is, is you're going the wrong direction. You turn and you go the right direction. It's not just saying I'm sorry. It's not just asking for forgiveness. It's taking your actions and changing them. That's what repentance is. And so nobody is perfect. And, uh, and we're not earning our salvation. I know that there will be some people that listen to this and think that's what I'm saying, but that's not what I'm saying at all. Jesus already paid everything. This is about following him truly. This is about being his disciple. This is about being in the future kingdom. So number three is a disciple desires what their master desires. If you have different goals than your master, then why are you, why are you with them? If you don't want to be them, if you don't want to do what they're doing, if you don't want to learn what they're doing and do that, then you should go a different direction. And so a disciple desires what Jesus desires. While Jesus was on earth, it was extremely clear that his desire was to do the will of his Father. His words and deeds revolved around this. So what is your desire? When you look at yourself, do you actually want what God wants? Do you even want to want what God wants, right? Right? Do you pray to, uh, and ask God to give you his desires, to make them known to you, to give you his will? I want to go ahead and call the band back up. Do we make his word so valuable in our lives that his will does become our will? And when wills conflict, and they often will, in fact, most of the time, who's wins? When you're away from Sunday morning and you're, you're by yourself on a different day, what do you, 
what, what is your thoughts like? What are you going towards? Are you single-minded in this desire? Do you seek to get to know the Lord more, to read his word more, to serve him more? Or do you just seek your own pleasures? I think it's a good question uh, to constantly ask ourselves. And so there's really only two places that you can be when following Jesus truly. One, you can be training to be a disciple. Two, you can be training others to be a disciple. Both are roles as a disciple. And uh, we will all be in those roles at some point. Even Paul, who was the most educated possible at that time, he knew the Bible better than anybody else. When Jesus met him on the road, and he realized that he was wrong, that Jesus was the truth, what did he go and do? Did he immediately go out and start making disciples himself? Nope. He went and trained under other people, really learning what it meant to follow Jesus. And uh, we're not sure how long that period was, whether it was one, two, three years, but it was a considerable period of time. And then there was a point where they were praying together and God called, uh, spoke to them and said, set apart from me, Paul. Set apart from me, Barnabas. And send them out. And that was Paul's change from being trained to being sent out. And so the thing is, those things make it, it doesn't just happen. It's a decision that we make. And it's, it's difficult without intentionally making that decision. I'd say impossible. And so right now, maybe it's time for you to repent and decide to change your ways. Jesus didn't simply ask people to believe in him, but to follow him, to take up their cross and follow, to quite literally leave what they were doing and go with him. So right now, I believe that God is calling us into the next steps. Those are gonna look different for each person. For some of us, that may be the first first step of calling Jesus your master, of deciding to become a disciple. For others, God is convicting you right now to move in some way. He's placing his will upon your heart. He has more for you to do. Maybe you've been calling yourself a disciple for a long time, but you're not. For others, you have been a disciple in training for years. And now it's time for you to go and disciple others in whatever ministry God has given you. And that's a scary thing. The disciples didn't feel ready when they were sent out. And that's why they prayed for boldness. Whatever it may be, if the Holy Spirit is convicting you right now, do not remain in your seat and just passively hear these words. We have our prayer partners come up here. I want you to come up here and, and make a physical action. 
Kneel before the Lord. Say, Lord, whatever you have for me, if I'm gonna call myself a disciple, if I'm gonna truly seek you, what is my next step? So I'm gonna pray. We're gonna have a few minutes and I encourage you, if God is calling you to movement in some way, just come up, pray with someone, kneel at the altar. Dear Lord, it's so easy to sometimes just say whatever you have for us. That's what we want. And then it's so difficult to actually live that way. Lord, I pray that as you convict people's hearts right now, that you would spur them to action. That they would repent and choose to change their ways wherever that may be, Lord, however you are moving. Lord, our desire is to be your true disciples. Pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.